announcements is worse. Like, what do I do? Good morning. <laughs> Glad you're here with us. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're in here in person or online, welcome. We're glad you're choosing to engage. Uh, we are nearing the end um, of our walk through the entire book of Acts. And um, I don't know about you, uh, but for me, this exercise, walking through the book of Acts, has built um, such confidence in my heart uh, when it comes to what I'm called to do and who I'm called to be, especially in uncertain times where destabilizing forces um, have been wreaking havoc on our sense of stability as a society and as individuals and social pressures have been tossing us to and fro. Um, and this place and this people and this content that we've been walking through um, has been for me very much in a real way a rock in stormy seas. And I hope you can at least in some way relate to that. Um, in the cultural, social, political storm that was the dumpster fire of 2020, um, it just seemed right to remember uh, the birth of the church and perhaps remember what God intended for his people to be um, in any society, in, at any point in history, and in any nation. And for me, it has very much done that, and it's bolstered my heart in Christ. So if you're visiting today, as much as I would love to catch you up, on this, since we've been going at this since June, um, there's just too much to cover, but there's so much that we've gone over that's the context culminating now as the book closes to an end. Um, and I have today... And next week, to tie a bow on this thing, we have about eight chapters to go. So a lot is happening. It's going to, again, feel like we're kind of drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, um, we'll be going over about three chapters. So here we go. Good luck. And try not to get, down, get bogged down in the details and give you a bird's eye view of what's happening in the book um, while pointing out the realities that I see at play um, behind the text, okay? So let me pray for us, um, and then we will jump into it. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Speak peace um, to hearts uh, that have a lot of things in our minds, Lord. There's a lot of things going on that distract us, Lord. And I just ask right now, Holy Spirit, for the peace of God to rest on us, that we might sit with Scripture in such a way that it would form us, Lord. Um, come and help us be Christians, God, in our day, in our time. And Father, I pray that our hearts would feel the weight of what it means to call ourselves Christians, Lord, in any society and in any age, um, and especially in our times. In Jesus' name, amen. What you're going to see is the book of Acts ends in a very unsatisfactory way. But we're going to dig into that next week. For now, Paul sets his sight on two locations. Um, and I, every week, I have a map, and every week I forget to put it up, so... Sorry, no map. But he sets his sight on two locations that he wants to get to. Uh, the first is Jerusalem before Pentecost, and the second is Rome. Now, he eventually does get to Rome, but not without some serious obstacles. He's got um, to get to, he does get to Jerusalem, and it takes about two years uh, to finally get to Rome. And some of why it takes so long on this journey um, is he's been, he'll get shipwrecked from now until the end of the uh, book. He'll be shipwrecked. He'll be beat, which we're used to by now. Um, there are political dynamics at play that come into why he doesn't get to. And then serious plots against his life. Like at one point, 40 men take an oath not to eat until they kill Paul. So bro has some serious obstacles. And really from 21 
21 on into the rest of the book, Paul's a prisoner. He's in chains of some sorts, right? But he sets his sight on Rome. And the first thing that I want to answer before we get into the text is why does he want to get to Rome? Why, Paul? Why go to Rome? Well, of course, number one, it's the mother city of the Roman Empire. At least, historians will tell us, a million people living in, or in this city, which is twice the population of any city he's been to up until this point. In 200 AD, Rome is the largest city in the world, according to historians. So Paul is clearly swinging for the fences and wants as many people as humanly possible to hear about this news, this person, this Jesus, right, that has done something remarkable, transformed him in his life. So he is relentless, not only in faithfully proclaiming what he believes will change the world, but he is relentless in his confidence that Jesus will, in fact, save those whom he preaches to. And bro just goes for it, man. At any point, if he can find any audience, be it king or servant or guard or anyone, he's preaching, man. He's just going for it in terms of what Jesus has done for him. So number one, Rome's the most populated city in the world at the time. Secondly, fill in this statement, all, all roads lead to... Rome, right. It was where the whole world was connected for him, right? Rome, uh, all down around Africa, up on the Asian side, all through Europe, man, it's, it's just expansive. It was the whole known world uh, as far as Paul was concerned. So today, if we said, you know what, we want to go somewhere, we want to impact our, our country, our nation maybe, we want to go, where are we going to go where there's the most people, where the most people get to, it's like a contact point. Well, you might say, well, maybe New York City, right? Eight million some odd people live in New York City. And he goes to what for him would have been the largest city in the known world, which was a global power. Rome sat on top of a mountain of roads and infrastructures, right? So not only that, Paul himself tells us why he wants to go to Rome in Romans 1. Romans, the book of Romans, little nerdy tidbit for you, the one book Paul wrote to a group of people he had never been to before. He had never been to Rome. And in Romans 1, he tells us why he wants to go see them. And we also know that while Pentecost happened in Jerusalem in Acts 2, Romans were present. People who lived in Rome were present there and presumably had gone back, lived out their faith in their own city and started a church in the city of Rome. And so Paul writes to these people and says this, without ceasing, so we maybe have it on the screen, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Theologians think that he wrote this while at Corinth. For I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual strength to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. So Paul doesn't see the preaching of the gospel as some way in which he can earn favor before the Lord. He says, I am under obligation. He says, I want, I owe it to everyone. He, Paul seems to feel that he is indebted to anyone with a pulse to preach the thing that has transformed his life so radically. In other words, he treats the preaching of the gospel like a moral responsibility. It's just the right thing to do. And he seems to think that anyone who had met the living God and experienced the transforming grace of Jesus should feel that same weight. You don't talk about it like that unless you think about it like that. So can I just say to you, whether you feel that impulse or not, 
has less to do with your desire to do the right thing and more to do with your ability to see the glory of Christ. And we'll come back to that. Everyone in this room is an evangelist, okay? So let me, let me prove it to you in a really cheesy way, all right? What do you do after you go to that amazing restaurant that has the salsa that is just right? You tell, you tell, you tell your buddy, dude, I went to this place that had these shrimp tacos. They were legit. And the salsa was like just salty enough, just the right amount of tomato, had a little spice in there. Perfect, right? What do you do after you see that movie that you just weep like a child, right? When you're like in Forrest Gump or something, like he's not a smart man, but he knows what love is, right? You're just weeping. What do you do? What do you do after that? You go and tell your friends, man, have you seen, is that my dating myself with Forrest Gump? <laughs> yeah, we're like, what's that? You go, or, or is this better? When Samwise picks up Frodo. There we go, all right? And carries him up Mount Mordor. And he's like, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you, right? And you're like, oh, I want a friend like that. Like, Bro, have you seen it? Oh, it's so good. Oh, man, it just made me, you know, right? What do you do, man? In, in Christianese, what that's called is evangelism. And you're like, no, it's not. I was just telling someone about something you enjoy. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's it. That's evangelism. But because most people have some forced, heavy-handed idea of evangelism from some dude holding a sign or some youth event you went to where you felt emotionally manipulated, right? So out of some social impulse to be sensible and respectable to our peers, we decided, I'm not going to talk about Jesus because I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. Listen, if the claims of Jesus were simply, he just kind of adds comfort to your life. Jesus, he makes you feel good. Okay, then let's not make people uncomfortable about feelings. But the claims of Jesus aren't, he's garnished on the play of an already okay life. The claims of Jesus are, he take the words that the Bible itself, him light, darkness to light. That's the claim of Jesus. That he takes people who live in darkness, Gollum, here we go, let's just go LRTR, whatever, Lord of the Rings. God takes in darkness, puts them into light, right? The, the, the language of the New Testament is from death to life. That's the language of the New Testament. That's the kind of impact Jesus is trying to get at when he enters into someone's life, when his will is had in human hearts. What's it like to become a Christian? Well, you just start going to church and you do these things. You got a bunch of rules you got to follow. Jesus would say, no, it's like you were dead and life was breathed into you. That's the picture. If that's the picture of the New Testament, then we have to reassess how we talk about it and how we think about it with people who don't know that, don't we? There has to be some sort of way that we can think about and talk about what Jesus claims he has done in our lives. And if we have in any way experienced the kind of thing that is talked about in the New Testament, the way it is talked about, then we will naturally talk about it to others. In fact, I would argue that if you experience the saving power of Jesus, the challenge is not talking about it. Amen. Okay, all right, amen, I like that, okay. It, the language in the New Testament, y'all, is dramatic and comprehensive. Jesus doesn't talk about knowing him like an accessory. He talks about knowing him like it's being born again. He talks about knowing him as if it is being given a source that never runs dry. You know the, the language he uses? Living water. It's not a well that runs dry. It's something that never ends. It's always overflowing. Lewis says becoming Christian isn't like teaching a horse to run faster or jump higher. It's like giving a horse wings and turning it into an altogether different creature. 
That's how the Bible is going to talk about knowing God. It's entering into a quality of life. Listen, use your brains, people. It's, is that condescending? I'm sorry. It's, in, it's entering in to a quality of life that not even death can threaten. That's what the Bible means when it says eternal life. Eternal life isn't something that begins when you die. What they're saying is now you get the kind of life that not even death can threaten. You get the kind of life that death will never dawn the horizon on. The kind of life that lasts forever. And in the Bible, they call it eternal life. And that's what Jesus has to offer. And most people, unless they think joy is out of fashion, which some people do think joy is out of fashion, they're too cool for school, right? will long for others to share in their joy, won't they? It's the most natural thing. And we will all do it in one way or another. Remember a couple weeks ago, we said being a Christian is not about knowing the truth. It's about the ability to rejoice in the truth. And what we said is demons know the truth. But demons can't rejoice in the truth. Being a Christian is about rejoicing in the truth. If, if you honestly find joy in God, the challenge isn't, oh, should I talk about Jesus? No, the challenge is not talking about him. Jesus talked about this in such common sense, practical ways. He said, guys, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a box. It's just common day items, and Jesus gets right at the heart of the issue. It's just common sense. It's just practical Stuff that we function in every day, whether we think about it or not. You were created. No, you take a lamp and you put it somewhere where it does what it was designed to do, which is give light to everyone in the room. Look at me. You were designed to reflect the glory of God. That's what you were made to do. The mirror may feel a bit clouded and fractured at times. Amen. Amen. but it's the reason we were all created, at least according to the Christians. So if you put all that together, it's possible that you are not truly alive the way God intended you to be alive until you are seeing and rejoicing in the truth of God and actively inviting others into that joy. And for some of us, that might feel a bit foreign, but to anyone who has played any role in seeing someone else come to salvation in Jesus, you know the joy I'm talking about. It's something that there's no, there's no other joy like that, right? And Paul knew that part of reflecting the glory of God would be articulating the story of Jesus to anyone who would listen. So he's determined to get to Jerusalem, right? The rest of Acts is basically him getting there. So Paul starts heading southeast down the coast of the Aegean Sea, stopping to encourage brothers along the way on his way to Jerusalem. He stops at Trous, Trous, Acts 20, verse 7, where poor Itticus, you guys remember this? Poor Itticus. Itticus's name means lucky. (laughs) He drifts asleep while Paul is preaching through the night and falls out of the third story window. This is in Acts 20. And it's taken up dead. And I mean, at any point, you would think, okay, we're out of that sermon, right? You know, someone died, so I guess it's over. Well, he, Paul goes down, leans over him, and he says, he's alive, and brings him back up, and then starts teaching until sunrise, right? So I see you out there nodding your head, you know, when I'm, you know, when I'm preaching. And I just, I just want to say, I just want to say Christianity has a clear history which supports long-winded preachers, okay? So... <laughs> So because Paul, in his own words, is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, that's the language, constrained by the Spirit, 
um, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit testifies to me in every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. Because he feels the Holy Spirit leading him to get to Jerusalem, he doesn't want to go into Ephesus because he doesn't want to get hung up in Asia for whatever reason. If you remember last time, it didn't go so well for him in Ephesus. Um, so, but he wants to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders. This is Acts 20 I'm talking about. So he asked the elders to come meet him at the coastal city. Um, and the, the second half of Acts 20 is a pastoral farewell, okay, to the elders at Ephesus. That's the second half of 20. And he says this in this farewell. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that, that I've received from Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He tells them, the elders at Ephesus, he says, listen, guys, people are going to come, fierce wolves who don't spare the flock. And he just warns them, stay on your guard, right? They kneel together full of sorrow. They pray together. They weep. And Paul leaves, never again to be seen by the Ephesians. Paul then boards the ship, goes around Greece, past Cyprus, all the way down to entire modern-day Lebanon, and down to two more towns, and eventually to Caesarea, which is about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And just about everywhere Paul stop, stops to, to encourage the brothers, everyone says, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Don't do it, right? Everyone says it. And in 21.4, the language is interesting. It says, by the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to, to uh, Jerusalem. In fact, in Caesarea, it's even more dramatic, right? A prophet named Agabus comes to Paul and he does this Old Testament visual thing that a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament did in Acts 21, 11 uh, through 15. It says this, Agabus, he took Paul's belt around his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. It's kind of a passive aggressive way to say, I'm just say Paul, right? And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, 12. When he heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Notice the language, we, Luke himself is amongst the crowd that's saying, Paul, don't do it, man. We all know how this is going to go down. But realizing he's not going to be persuaded, they'd say, well, let the will of the Lord be done, right? Just Christianese for, you know, do what you're going to do, right? After these days, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. So, so Paul goes. Now, the interesting thing to me in this passage is that here, his friends are living by the Spirit and saying, Paul, don't go. And Paul is living by the Spirit and saying, I'm going, right? This is even with this dramatic prophecy of like, you know, being hogtied and stuff, like Spirit of God's talking to you, bro. And he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but to die for the name of Jesus. So his friends are living a place, living from a place, listen, his friends are living from this place of compassion and longing to preserve the life of their friend and brother. And they are in step with the spirit. God is saying, mm-hmm, yep. And Paul is saying, I count my life as nothing. My life is Christ's and I will lay it down for Christ if I choose. And he is living constrained by the spirit, right? And God's saying, mm-hmm. And thus, we can both be living by the Spirit and disagree about big life decisions, y'all. This is not a cut and dry thing in the Bible. The Bible is complex with nuance all throughout. These, both of these groups are living by the Spirit. And at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that God gives us the dignity of choice, right? And lets us choose how we will follow him. And maybe perhaps more clearly, what we're seeing in this picture of, of Acts 2 is the cost of following Jesus, 
See, I think of families who has a kid like Jaken. You know, Jaken, Jaken's a missionary we support and he's literally nine feet tall. Bro is a giant. Have you seen Jaken? When I hug Jaken, I'm like hugging his belly button. He's a giant. I'm, you think I'm joking. He's massive, right? So he, anyway, that's not, not in my notes. Uh, he's one of the missionaries that we support. And I think of families like him, right? And he goes to his parents and says, you know, I'm gonna go to the unreached places in Europe where Islam has a foothold, and I'm going to live the gospel out so that they might know Jesus. Well, in that moment, most parents would probably not be super jazzed about the idea of your boy moving to a place where it's not great to be a Christian, right? And we can see that situation from both perspectives, can't we? We can see the situation from his parents saying, we love you. We love your life. We value your life. We don't want harm to come to you. And the spirit of God says, yeah, it's my heart. I don't want harm to come to you. And the other is saying, Jesus' love is better than my life. And I'd prefer to lay it down so that other people know about that love. And the spirit of God says, yep, that's my heart. And we shouldn't over-spiritualize one or the other. Because at the end of the day, God gives us the ability to choose how we will walk, how we will sacrifice, and how much we are willing to give so that others may know and rejoice in the same love that we know and rejoice in. And what we are seeing here is gospel goodbyes, and it hurts, and there's pain, and there's sorrow, and there's prayers, and it's what happens when God gets a hold of a heart and the heart decides not to let go of God, right? And some of you have said goodbyes like this. And you know the reality of joy and sorrow being simultaneous. You know the reality of grieving and in the same moment rejoicing that God's going to get glory, even if it costs me my life. Now, nothing in all of Scripture slaps in the face our consumeristic, narcissistic approach to Christianity like this does. It just flips the table on its head. You cannot maintain a consumeristic approach to Christianity and sit with things like this. It's going to cause you to assess the situation, isn't it? What is Christianity about? What do I get out of this? Who is this really about? And this has to be thrusted into that conversation, right? Um, so Paul gets to Jerusalem, and pretty immediately when he gets to Jerusalem, the brothers say, listen, <laughs> people are telling the believing Jews, right? so the Jews that have become Christians, that you're a heretic. So Paul gets to Jerusalem, and immediately the guys take him in, and they say, this is what's going on here, okay? Everyone's talking about you. And they're saying to the believing Jews that you are telling the Jews abroad who had believed, right? to forsake the law of Moses. They're saying that you're a heretic, that you're saying don't circumcise your kids, don't walk according to our customs, and they will certainly hear that you've come to Jerusalem. So everyone sees the writing on the wall as soon as Paul walks in, right? And so they hatch a plan, it's very interesting, to try to pacify the religious Jews that Paul is not trying to start a new religion. That's basically what they do. They say, Paul, listen, we have a plan. And if we think you, if you, if you do this, maybe the guys who want you dead will see, oh, Paul's a Jew. He's not trying to start a new religion, which he wasn't, right? For Paul, 
Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who's the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. He wasn't trying to start a new thing. He was like, this is, you know, anyway, we talked about that before. We can't get into it. So they hatched this plan and they say, listen, these, we got these four guys that are under a vow. And this, a vow is this kind of religious promise thing that Paul even himself had done in Acts 18, 18. If you look about it, it's this kind of purifying fasting thing where they shave your head and everyone knows that you're doing it. So they say to Paul, they say, listen, do this with these four guys. And in fact, you pay for them to get their hair cut. And then everyone will know, okay, Paul's, he's the Jew. He's a good good old Jew, and he's doing the purifying rites with these other guys, and we shouldn't kill him, but it doesn't work. As soon as Paul goes into the temple, haircut or not, someone sees him, and, you know, it gets real. Um, And so they immediately see Paul in the temple, the Jews. They accuse him of exactly the things that he's been accused of, teaching against the law, teaching against the temple, which is talked about in 21, 28. Um, And it says this in 21, verses 30. It should be on the screen, perhaps. All the city was stirred up, the whole of Jerusalem, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and and at once the gates were shut, the temple gates. This is um, symbolic in many ways, right? So he's dragged out of the Jewish temple, and boom, the gates are shut. Uh, 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's the Romans in charge, tribune of the cohort, that's the Roman, the commander, commanding Roman officer, that all Jerusalem was in confusion, 32. And at once he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune, when they being the Jews, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, being Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. I I don't know why one chain wasn't enough. I don't know if the Atlanta rapper got, I don't know, okay. He inquired, I doubt there's any correlation. He inquired who he was, uh, he being the commanding officer, Roman. (laughs) That was totally unnecessary, wasn't it? Yeah. He inquired who he was and what he had done. The Roman officer begins an examination of Paul. Who are you and what have you done? Why they want to kill you? Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, being Paul, to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of they have to pick Paul up and carry him out because of these religious Jews wanting to beat him to death in the name of God. These religious people We're beating a man to death in the name of God. We've talked about this. Christianity, all religions have a long history of of violence, don't they? Because no one can be as violent, as freely as a religious person because they do it with the approval of their own conscience. Yeah. Beating him to death in the name of God. And the Romans step in, basically save Paul from the mob, and they're trying to figure out, what did you do, man? (laughs) Why is he trying to kill you, right? And they can't get a straight answer, and so they have to carry him out. And then they put him in the barracks. And listen, this is crazy, all right? This is what we're seeing over and over again with Paul. As soon as Paul gets in the barracks, like just beaten within an inch of his life, all right? Like dude's bloodied, you know, he's got blood on his ripped clothes are probably ripped, covered in mud and his own dirt and blood. And all, you know, his face is probably swelling. Are we, are we seeing this? I mean, a mob was about to beat him to death. And the Romans like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they drag him off. Soon as he's brought in the barracks, he says, let me go back out there. Let me preach to him, all right? This is just absurd. This is absurd. There's no way to understand this. All right, can you imagine being beaten within an inch of your life and your first impulse is, let me go back out there and tell him about Jesus, right? 
Like we can't even begin to understand this impulse. Go back and preach God's love to those who want to physically hurt you. Hello, anyone? To those who would incite a mob and gladly join in beating you to death until you're not breathing. And you want to go and chat with them about Jesus? Does anyone else struggle with this? Am I the only one that I'm like, I can't relate, man. I can't relate. Like self-preservation is going to kick in at some point, right? When I'm bloodied and maybe something's broken, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take five. You know, I'm just going to take five. I'm just going to chill out. Thanks for getting me, Romans. I'm just going to hang out. In the... And he's like, let me go back out there, right? There's no way to understand this, right? How, how does this fit in here? Um, for I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper, good plans, not for harm. How does that fit in here? How does come to me for my yoke is light, my burden, right? How does that fit in here, right? How do we understand this? The dude who wrote 13 books of the New Testament and this impulse to us is so foreign, if we're honest, right? There's no way to understand this unless God's love is really better than life itself. That's the only way I can ever come around to my mind comprehending why anyone would willingly want to go back to the people who want you dead to say, yes, but Jesus loves you and he died for you and he saved me and he can save you the same way that he saved me. And what Paul ends up saying to them is basically that, y'all, y'all know me. This is what this is Paul's sermon. Y'all know me. I grew up here. In fact, so-and-so you know, I, I studied, I was a Pharisee under so-and-so, drops dropping names so he can prove that he's a real Jerusalite, you know? Jerusalite, is that a word? I don't know, I just made it up. Dropping names, and then he says this, man, I was persecuting the way, which is what the Christians were called. I was doing it, man. I had letters from the Pharisees. I was beating them. I was putting them in prison. In fact, he says at this sermon, when he's trying to talk to the Jews, when the, the, the Romans let him go back out, which I'm like, I mean, should they have done that, you know? Um, when he's talking to him, he says, guys, I was holding people's jackets while they stoned Stephen. It's like, I'm here, I'm with you. Like, I get it. And he says, if Jesus can save me, he can do the same for you. And just preaches the gospel to him, right? It's just unbelievable. Um, oh man, I just got way off my notes. He preaches to the mob. He says his sins were washed away, right? And, and actually, the sermon seems to be going okay until he says that God sent him to the Gentiles and then the crowd erupts again, right? They start shouting, he deserves to die, and they drag him back into the commander. And the commander by this point has just had it with this whole thing, right? I mean, I, you can feel the annoyance with the Romans because they're just trying to keep the law. And these Jews are fighting over stuff, trying to kill people, and you know. So he's, he's had it with the whole situation. And he says, flog that man until he tells us why they're trying to kill him. <laughs> and so poor Paul, right? And so Paul looks over his shoulder as they're stretching him out to flog him, which at this point would have potentially killed him. And he says, hey, are you guys allowed to, to um, beat a Roman without trial? It's the second time Paul has used this tactic to avoid a beating, and he gets out of it. Um, and so Paul avoids it. In 30, it says this, uh, which we've talked about before. We can't get into it now. But on the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the Roman, the Roman tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So this happens the next day. So the stage is set for like the clash of the titans, right? You got the Jews on one side, want Paul dead. Got the Romans on the other side, just trying to figure out what's going on. And then you got Paul. But that's next week, right? 
So how is Paul going to get out of this one, right? What will Paul say to the Jews, right? Um, and it's actually quite clever, and it's in the Bible, and you can read it yourself. Um, but in some ways, we'll see for the rest of the book, Paul is dealing with legal challenges levied against him by the Jews, and he will turn every examination from the Romans into an opportunity to preach the gospel to anyone who would listen. And it's remarkable to watch, right? I would highly encourage you to go read 20, 21, 22, and 23 if if you're into that sort of thing. Um, And he says it over and over and over again. This is who I, I was. This is what Jesus did. He saved me, forgave me, loved me in spite of myself, and he will do the same thing for you. And it's what he says over and over again. This is a classic testimony sermon, right? But what I want to leave us with today um, is what for me is perhaps the most remarkable and difficult thing for us to wrestle with as we sit with chapters like this, which is this. The position of Paul towards his own life in relation to the glory of God. This is one of the more challenging bits of this whole passage. He says this twice. I'm going to read two points where he is going to reveal his position towards his own life. Okay, Paul, uh, Acts 20, 24 says this. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 21.13, he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The way I see it, you have one of two responses to this. You have one of two responses to such boldness and what will, which, which some will surely call reckless carelessness of your own well-being. I mean, could you not define those statements as such? What a reckless fool. Preserve your life, Paul. Be reasonable. Quit being so dogmatic, right? There's what could possibly be worth dying for, man. Like use some common sense. The first response is gonna say to this, this life is all we have, bro. This moment is all we have. It's important than any other moments that may follow. Therefore, avoid pain and look out for number one, Paul. And of course, we can all relate to that because <laughs> the avoidance of pain And self-interest is arguably the air that we breathe. I mean, how many industries are built on the avoidance of pain in our day and age? How many industries are built on convincing you that you got to look out for number one, right? It's the air we breathe today. Those who live in that sea and function in a sea of self-interest and self-preservation at all costs cannot rationalize this position. And they have to say, what a waste. What are you doing, Paul? Those who don't understand delighting in God don't know what to do with Paul here. Those whose Christianity is just consumerism in religious clothing don't know what to do with Paul here. Because the first response to this position is going to declare and protest, right, what on earth is worth dying for, right? Or you can ask that question this way, which helps helps us shift to the, the second response you can have to someone who has such a remarkable position and perspective of his own life. You could ask it this way. What did Paul see in Jesus that made him see his own life, even his own suffering, 
as secondary. What did Paul see in Jesus that made him see his own life, even his own suffering, as secondary? Is there such a beauty known to man that can cause him to willingly lay down his life? And you say, well, well, of course there is. Every great love story ever told is about that. Is it not? Every movie, every book that in any way declares a noble kind of love is about self-sacrifice. It's where all the great love stories get us in the, you know? He laid down his life for us, you know? And to date, y'all, no matter how sophisticated or enlightened or progressive our society may become, there is still no greater love story than one laying down his life for another. I mean, try it out. I, I mean, prove me wrong, man. Show me a movie that doesn't boast noble love who doesn't in some way have someone laying down his life for someone else. It's what we all are drawn to, isn't it? Self-sacrifice, the abandonment of self-preservation for the well-being of another. There's no better, there's no more glorious. It's what we call the glory of self-sacrificing love. And all of our hearts are drawn to it, whether we want it to be or not. And all of our hearts say in the depths of us, that's the kind of love that I need. Isn't that interesting? We're all magnetically drawn to a love that abandons its own self-interest to preserve ours. And we all say, that's what I was created for, to experience something like that. Where do we even get that, Right? Is it possible Paul saw the person in whom every other love story ever told throughout the ages would in some way find its roots? Is it possible that that's what Paul saw? That he beheld the one who basically defined self-sacrifice? And if you think about it in that way, then it just makes sense what he's doing, doesn't it? Because you know what he's doing? He's just following him. I mean, it's just what Jesus did. And we see, Luke wants us to see that your story as a Christian is, will be inevitably intertwined with Jesus's story. And you will be called to suffer. And you will be called to lay down your life in one way or another for the sake of his name. That's what Romans 6 is all about, right? How else can we understand this impulse, right? What else could cause a man to not only forgive his attackers, but long for them to know the God who loves and forgives? Well, if that God had first suffered in agony himself, if Jesus had given himself to his accusers so that they might know God, then all Paul is doing is following the example that was set before him by his leader. Luke seems to want us to know this, that if we're gonna follow Jesus, our story will never be in some ways overlapping and intertwined with the story of Jesus. The second response to this kind of position is just common sense from that perspective then, isn't it? Of course we lay down our life for Jesus. He laid down his life for us. But if you don't see the suffering and self-sacrifice of Jesus himself, this makes no sense to you and it's absurd. It's offensive. Why would you lay your life down? Something as valuable as your life, what other value do you have? What can you point to as value? Why would you lay it down? Why would you say it's of no value to me if only I could? Well, of course, it makes sense if we're just following Jesus because that's what he did, right? Paul saw the unmitigated majesty 
and glory of God's love poured out in the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Not only did he see it, but he surrendered to it and it began to fill his whole person. And in seeing that, he then saw everything else in a new light, right? That's the only way I can make sense of this. Which is why the question always before us is not, are you trying hard enough as a Christian? But rather, is your heart and mind of the kind that can see and treasure and delight in the sacrifice of Jesus. The question before us isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with obeying the rules. The question is, do you have eyes to see the glory of God in the self-sacrifice of Jesus himself? Or are you blind to these things? Do you have eyes but don't see and ears that don't hear? Are you blind to the self-sacrifice of Jesus, probably so that you can avoid following him in such self-sacrifice and love, right? Paul oddly enough, had to be blinded to be able to see, if you remember his story. Oh, that we would see the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Then and only then will we be able to understand in any way Paul's joy and what would cause him to live in such a way. Let's stand and pray.